Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I sat down with Eric Jonas. He is a postdoc in the Berkeley Center for Computational Imaging. Eric is also affiliated with UC Berkeley's Rice Lab. And in fact, it was at Rice Lab that he first gave a talk about Pyren, a framework that lets data enthusiasts proficient with Python easily run existing code at massive scale on Amazon Web Services. And uh, Eric and his collaborators are working on a related project, uh, NumPyRen, which is going to allow people to use linear algebra at massive scale on serverless architecture. So actually, Eric is also, since he was affiliated with Rice Lab, he is also very familiar with uh, many of the projects there. So we talked about both PyRen, NumPyRen, and uh, Rice Lab Ray. Coincidentally, we are offering a few tutorials on Ray coming up here at the AI conference in San Francisco and at the AI conference in London. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Eric Jonas, postdoc at UC Berkeley. Welcome to the Data Show. Hi, thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. So I'm looking at your background. You have like a cross-section of skills that industrial data scientists would envy, although I would suspect that a lot of them don't even know some of these techniques, digital signal processing being one of them. One thing that I'm not familiar with, maybe you can kind of give me like a very quick definition of what is heliophysics? Oh, great. So heliophysics is the study of the sun. Okay. And so why, so you're now uh, doing uh, research in that, like writing papers? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the one of the interesting things about the sun is that um, we it's kind of a combined big data, little data problem. Right. On one hand, we have these satellites that are up there kind of taking measurements, you know, every few seconds for the past you know, five to eight years. But on the other side, we we, we have an N of one. Right. There, we have one sun. It's kind of the only star that we can see with that level of resolution to get kind of this kind of interesting data about. And so from a from a kind of data science or machine learning perspective, it presents a lot of very interesting problems, especially with respect to kind of understanding and predicting how things that happen on the sun can influence things that happen on Earth. So are you so is it fair to describe you as a post or exbation? I mean, <laughs> what an interesting question. Um, um, I struggle with this. To really nail that down requires me to figure out what it means to be a Bayesian. But the I still very much think that the Bayesian program of kind of explicitly modeling your your problem and thinking carefully about uncertainty and how uncertainty propagates through your system and ultimately trying to, you know, be very careful about what your your priors are imparting on your model and these sorts of things is like incredibly important. But I do a lot less Bayesian stuff these days, partly because for a lot of the problems I care about, kind of the, the scale of data isn't necessarily amenable to more of the kind of classic Bayesian computation techniques, including kind of variational methods or, or Markov chain Monte Carlo. So I still have like some Bayesian projects that are kind of cooking in the background where, you know, maybe we have a small data, but a, a very interesting, complicated model that reflects the underlying physics. And but in general, yeah, I would say I'm a recovering Bayesian, let's say. So uh, actually, I, I had one of your thesis advisors give a keynote at our, uh, uh, one of our AI conferences, uh, Josh Tenenbaum, and he's uh, kind of uh, applying some of these methods in conjunction with deep learning and trying to uh, develop techniques that uh, kind of mimic more how humans think, maybe not how the brain works, but how humans think. So have you been following what they're doing? Oh, very much so. So, so Josh's research program is, is, I mean, I've always been a fan um, and I'm not, I'm, they gave me my PhD, so I'm no longer, you know, contractually obligated to say that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Josh's research program is very interesting because the, the sorts of structures um, and reasoning that he's interested in kind of doing inference over, right? Notions of, of how humans organize information, how they do certain types of planning and whatnot. 
have very kind of uh, uh, there's a long history of kind of structured probabilistic models to kind of explain this. But one of the places where that always um, those methods often struggled was bringing them kind of into contact with the sorts of actual raw data that a lot of humans see, right? Visual data, audio data, these sorts of things. So I really think a lot of the most interesting work that's that's going on in this space right now actually is is the attempt to to kind of merge or combine some of these uh, probabilistic methods and these things that look much more Bayesian or much more kind of probabilistically structured with ideas from deep learning. Um, another person who's, who's been doing a lot of great work in that space is, is uh, Matt Johnson, who was at MIT with me and, and is now at Google. And kind of all of these sorts of models kind of trying to address these questions where you know, you have some maybe intuitive high level model about how the world works, right? Maybe you have some concept of physics or some concept of object permanence or whatnot. But what your sensors are often taking in are relatively unstructured pixels. And so is it kind of possible to kind of build learning systems that, that can learn from kind of that unstructured data, but exploit these structured priors in a way that lets us kind of um, either learn with better sample complexity, so learn with, with fewer examples, or have higher performance on some metric we, we care about. And I think that's really the, the um, across the machine learning space, that's, that's really the most exciting place to be right now. Essentially, what you're doing is rather than brute force, learning everything from scratch, incorporate some domain knowledge or structure, right? Exactly. And incorporate kind of domain knowledge or structure in a way that generalizes well to new unseen examples, but isn't so constrained that um, it, it kind of solves the problem already for you. Right. So, so you, you, you want the, the raw data to kind of inform what's going on. And again, it's kind of this very Bayesian worldview. Right. But especially for things that look like, you know, time series models or models about kind of structured objects in the world, um, this can be very powerful. Yeah. And then. A few years back, I thought that uh, didn't DARPA have like a whole initiative around probabilistic programming? Oh, yes, they did. And then uh, every now and then I'll talk to the probabilistic programming people, uh, but I still don't have a clear clear grasp of what they mean by probabilistic programming because I think they themselves have a hard time defining. <laughs> well, right. So, so that's that's partly because a lot of I think these projects are still very um, um, academic and research focused. No, I mean, I would argue that the DARPA's probabilistic programming efforts were incredibly successful and that they resulted in kind of this, this cornucopia of probabilistic programming languages, all of which kind of are targeted towards different points in the research space. So the, the simplest way I like to describe probabilistic programming to people is it's automatic differentiation like we're used to in PyTorch or TensorFlow or whatever, plus probabilities, right? So if you, if, if imagine if you, you write down some computation graph that is going to generate some synthetic data for you, and then what you'd really like to do is say, well, I saw this real data kind of tell me what the hidden values would have been that would have generated this real or observed data. And that can end up being very powerful for... Um, again, these kind of Josh style models are kind of probabilistic models where, where you're trying to incorporate kind of prior notions of, of reasoning or structure. But it can also be very helpful in kind of the classical statistics context, right? A lot of what we think of as probabilistic programming actually was originally pioneered by our, our friends in, in, in the statistics community for just building complicated probabilistic models, right? The downside with probabilities is that often what you care about with when you're when you're working with probabilities is is some expectation, right? You say, well, you know, what is the average number of times this coin is going to come up heads? And as soon as you start talking about averages, you have to start doing integrals, which means that so many of these probabilistic models have these kind of horrible intractable integrals, right? You can't write down kind of clean closed form solutions. And so people turn to these kind of computational methods, including kind of variational inference and MCMC. And these computational methods are powerful, but they're really hard to write, right? Like I, as a, I guess as we said, recovering Bayesian, I look at the fact that all of this deep learning stuff is powered by stochastic gradient descent. And I'm like, that's it? Because the inference algorithms we were doing for, for, for Bayesian computation were kind of fantastically more complicated. And so the hope with these probabilistic programming languages, you can kind of write down these more complicated models, but also you can... The, the, the kind of framework handles the same way that like PyTorch handles your automatic differentiation for you. The probabilistic programming language handles kind of all of the machinery to make these algorithms work such that you kind of correctly sample from the distribution that you care about. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm actually surprised that uh, since Mike Jordan 
was part of Amp Lab and now Rice Lab that that angle, that element hasn't creeped up in any of their software stack. On the other hand, one of his students, uh, Zubin Garamani, who now heads up uh, Uber AI, I think they're starting to release some tools. Oh, so in fact, Uber has a um, um, a very good probabilistic programming language that they released called Pyro um, that, that's built on top of PyTorch and is, is quite powerful. And both Zubin and uh, Noah Goodman have been, um, who's a professor at Stanford and was one of Josh's postdocs, are quite extensively involved in that project. And I think it's, it's very impressive. They actually hired kind of our, the, the second um, engineer from our startup back in the day, Fritz Obermeyer, now kind of is the, the lead software dev on that project. And, and it's been making kind of leaps and bounds. So that's been very exciting. I should check it out because I'm a big PyTorch fan. I should check that out. So just to uh, make sure the audience knows, Eric is not a pure theoretician or academic. He's got some startup gravitas. Uh, In fact, it has a great name, Prior Knowledge. So uh, very quickly, what did you learn from that Prior Knowledge startup experience as far as building tools for industry? What did I learn from that experience? What a great great question. Um, The first thing I learned was that most people basically need linear regression. And the vast majority of the universe, even I think today, inside large companies is very much in a place where a lot of their challenges are not around particular machine learning methods, but are rather around kind of data aggregation, ETL, kind of figuring out what to do with the resulting machine learning models, figuring out how to deploy them. All of these things that kind of often as academics, we assume are solved problems. Um, actually, we found out through PK that, that in fact, a lot of these are very kind of open challenges, especially in large, in large orgs. The other thing I think I learned is just that enterprise sales is really hard. Like as much as I am now a million times more more sympathetic when someone calls me trying to sell me some enterprise software tool because man, like getting getting large organizations to write large checks for novel technology is a is a challenge and it is a skill and it can be learned like most skills, but it takes a lot of effort. And it was actually really nice when we got acquired by Salesforce, going inside Salesforce and kind of really watching the pros do it, right? I mean, unsurprisingly, Salesforce has some exceptionally good salespeople who do a great job kind of selling Salesforce's various solutions. And, and the exposure there was really interesting and kind of watching what it means to be kind of someone who knows how to understand what a customer's needs are in a particular vertical and convince them that like the tool that you're providing actually will solve those needs. And then ultimately kind of carry the process all the way through to delivery and integration. And I guess I have a lot more respect for that process than I did when I started PK as kind of a, a, say, naive, young 20-something graduate student. So the one thing about enterprise software sales is assuming you've identified a problem, let's say a workflow that needs to be automated or can lend itself to machine learning, then you kind of know the market. The hard thing, of course, as you pointed out, is selling to that market. <laughs> you know, on the other hand, uh, at least you have kind of a, a much more of a roadmap as opposed to a consumer startup, right? Right, exactly. Well, and, and, and again, like the, often it is the case for, for a lot of enterprise tools that the value they can potentially provide is, is much more kind of transparent then maybe for a consumer startup and the, the path to revenue also is often much more, much more transparent. There's not kind of this and then we'll get all the data and something, something adds and something like, the, you know, there's actually no dollars will exchange hands for goods and services. Kind of this lovely antiquated model that, that still actually powers most of the economy. So the reason I wanted to get you on this podcast is to talk about this new uh, cool open source project that you're involved with. There's two of them, actually. They're related. So let's talk first about Pyren. So first, describe the genesis of Pyren and describe Pyren itself. Fantastic. So, um, right. So my day job, in so much as a postdoc is a air quotes job, is focusing mostly on kind of computational imaging type problems, right? So we're very interested in this question of kind of how do you build better measurement devices ranging from microscopes to telescopes to MRI machines that kind of take advantage of the ubiquitous computation that we have available today, kind of see the unseen. And that means that we spend a lot of time 
working very closely with a lot of very smart kind of electrical engineers, applied physicists, optics people, and these sorts of things. And so we had been working with this group, uh, with kind of these groups at Berkeley for a long time. And, you know, we'd get up and every time we'd, we'd, we'd start talking about well, now, okay, here's how you run your cloud job. Here's how you, you know, use AWS or EC2 to kind of even do simple things like hyperparameter search or whatever, you know, figure out the right parameter for your regularization. Or, you know, if you have something that, that, that turns some data into an image and you want to create a video, here's how you, you know, it's this nice, embarrassingly parallel problem. Here's how you do it. And, and we weren't getting a lot of uptake. And it, it, it prompted some, we had a computational imaging lunch. We had one of these weekly lunches where, you know, one of our, our new professors, Ren Ng, um, who was the founder at Lytro, founder and CEO of Lytro and is now a Berkeley professor, was like, well, why is there no cloud button? And of course, being, you know, being Amp Lab and Rise Lab, people were like, haha, that's a dumb question. You know, why? Well, of course, there can't be a cloud button, blah, blah, blah. But we thought more about it. And actually, we started thinking that kind of for a large class of use cases, it might be viable to kind of automate a lot of the challenges that people experience with kind of using cloud computing infrastructure. And the real enabling technology for us was, you know, Amazon announced the availability of, of AWS Lambda, their microservices framework in, in 2014. And so kind of following this, this prompting, I, I, I went home and kind of in a weekend was like, well, I wonder how hard it is to kind of take an arbitrary Python function, marshal it across the wire, get it running in lambdas. I wonder how many I can get at once, blah, blah, blah. And, and thus kind of, of Pyren was born. Um, By the way, when you say uh, when they asked you for a cloud button, just to put this in context, uh, we're talking about people interested in scientific computation, right? So they're going to do some sort of linear algebra or some some large scale computation is that kind of is that kind so of a lot of objective? it was yes but you shouldn't necessarily think about it in terms of hpc type workloads right high performance computing it's just basically people kind of fitting what we think of as simple to kind of medium complicated models often which have kind of a substantial i guess linear algebra are they uh, models that are specialized so in other words since you are in berkeley people listening to this uh, may want to ask why not just use Spark? Well, so right. So that's another fun question. So so let's 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 talk about Spark. So the with with apologies to everyone at Databricks, um, when we asked around, we determined that in fact, even within the AMP lab, fewer than half of the graduate students had ever written a Spark job, right? And and that was really surprising. And there was this interesting question, you know, why are none of Mike Jordan's graduate students ever using Spark? Right? What are the impediments behind them using Spark, right? One question initially, or one challenge initially was um, Spark doesn't really abstract away a lot of the cluster management issues from you, right? With Spark, you still have to think about things in terms of the number of nodes. You have to think about things in terms of how you're getting the code out there. There are a lot of kind of associated challenges that come along with Spark. Now, Spark is incredibly powerful, right? You can kind of do arbitrary, distri scaled, distributed computation with it. And Spark is very fast, right? I mean, the, the, you know, you write your code in Scala, it gets converted, blah, blah, blah. It gets uh, optimized on the JVM by the JIT. And it's all very efficient. But if you, if you just want to, you know, generate the error bars for your NIPS paper by running the same experiment 100 times over and over again, the activation energy to move something to Spark is really high. And the knowledge required to kind of understand how to use Spark seems to be relatively high, right? And so the goal with Pyren was kind of, we're not, we, we didn't set out to build a general purpose distributed computation platform. What we really did, what we really set out to do was kind of add the ability for a normal user to just, with their Python code, make a few small changes and suddenly run it on, you know, 500 to 10,000 cores. So right? what, uh, what uh, sorts of Python code does Pyren support? So... The goal is to have Pyren support um, basically everything people are doing, right? Now, what is necessary for that? So, so right now, we've primarily focused on the entire kind of scientific Python stack, right? So SciPy, NumPy, Pandas, Matplotlib, you know, the whole, the whole ecosystem there, which is what we found kind of we were using a lot of and most of our collaborators were using kind of pretty extensively. And... The, now, one of the challenges with all of these uh, frameworks and running these things on Lambda is, of course, right now, Lambda is a fairly constrained resource environment, right? Amazon will quite happily give you, you know, 
3,000 cores in the next two seconds, but each one both has a maximum runtime and a small amount of memory and a small amount of local disk. So kind of a, a part of the, the, the current active research thrust is for, for Pyron is figuring out kind of how to do more general purpose computation within those sorts of resource limits. But right now we mostly support kind of, you know, everything that you would you would encounter in your normal kind of Python, Jupyter, NumPy, scikit-learn uh, workflow. So let's, uh, let's make this concrete uh, and have you kind of uh, name or describe a few use cases that uh, a data scientist in industry can relate to. So something that uh, Pyren enabled among your uh, original set of users. Great, fantastic. So let's start with anything that looks like an ETL workflow, right? So for my heliophysics project, which which I mentioned earlier, I had roughly 32 million separate photos of the sun, right? Separate, you know, kind of 16 megabyte images, each taken approximately 12 set seconds apart from each other, stored in S3, right? I, I kind of somewhat laboriously um, extracted this from various NASA archives. And initially, I wanted to do a bunch of kind of image processing on those, right? Including kind of processing that was was kind of of an analytics capacity, right? Let's just count how many bad pixels there are. Let's count how many, let's measure kind of how many sunspots there are in each image. You know, not not super complicated ImageNet TensorFlow style stuff, but stuff you can do with kind of scikit-learn. And the problem there is that for those sorts of ad hoc queries, they're embarrassingly parallel, but they also take a non-trivial amount of time, right? You have to get the image out from S3, you have to do the actual computation. And so the first thing I did, uh, part of the motivation for Pyren was even for that project, where it's like, look, if you have this kind of massive ETL task where it's not necessarily an ETL pipeline, right? I'm not, you know, this is again for kind of um, exploratory or ad hoc analytics here. I want to run these queries once, twice, maybe three times. I don't necessarily want to kind of build a complicated end-to-end -end system. And for that, Pyren ends up working fantastically, right? So it's very easy to kind of map over all possible keys in some S3 bucket or with some S3 prefix. And the nice thing is that behind the scenes, your Python code that you're using to do this is kind of transparently marshaled over to Lambdas. Amazon runs it on 3,000 or 5,000 or however many your, your limit is set to workers kind of as fast as they can, and you get the answers back in a few minutes. So for these kind of ETL pipelines, we've, we've had a lot of success, right? And then you say, okay, well, I've done this and maybe I've done some feature extraction and now I want to train some model, right? I'm going to train some linear model or some logistic regression or something. Or, you know, an actual problem we had was we were trying to do kind of control theory to optimize a, a controller for a particular robotics task. And for all of these kind of machine learning problems, you often have these hyperparameters that you have to worry about, right? So Pyren ends up helping out a lot also with these kind of hyperparameter search problems. Because again, you know, you could try and do something really complicated and fancy like Bayesian optimization, but you could also just grid and, you know, kick off 10,000 jobs and come back four minutes later and see what the best set of model parameters are. So that's the, 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 the hyperparameter optimization part has also been kind of extensively used. And finally, the one I actually, that's, that's in many ways closest to my heart. I mean, as, as you may have, you may have heard my boss, Ben Recht, talk about, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges around kind of reproducibility and machine learning. And part of that arises because people often don't put error bars in their paper. They only ever run the experiment once. You know, there's, there's not really this culture yet of careful methodical experimentation and machine learning the way there is in, in other sciences. And there's the equivalent of p-hacking in machine learning. There's a lot of p-hacking. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and except that no one at NIPS knows what a p-value is. So yeah, ex it, it, that's know, for, exactly For every is. neural network architecture that we see published, I wonder how many of them uh, these people tried, right? Right, exactly. Well, and, and, and you know, you, you, it's, that's, that's kind of easy to figure out. You figure out how many GPUs they have and you figure how long since their last archive post and kind of divide by time and that's the number, <laughs> right? But so the thought was, well, for a lot of these experiments, you know, why is it the case that if I have a figure and I want to put error bars, I have all this existing code that I've written, why is there still so much friction involved then in changing the random seed and basically running the same experiment over and over again? And so that's the other place where, where, where Pyron is really kind of shine has been in kind of taking existing scientific code and kind of late in the process with as little effort as possible, kind of scaling up the types of experiments or the classes of experiments you're running so that you're 
at the very least doing less p hacking right i i i, I we're certainly not solving that problem but it, it does make it easier to kind of do a lot of these sorts of experiments without worrying about it at the outset, right? So much of the scientific computing code is you're just hacking around, desperately trying to get something working, right? You're not, you don't enter a lot of these projects with kind of grand ambitions about how at the end it's going to be this big distributed system. So kind of that, that sort of transparent work there has really been, has really been the goal. And, and, and we've, we've found success and we've heard success from other people kind of um, across the internet for, for all of those sorts of use cases. So you described a few use cases here, uh, basically data processing and ETL, hyperparameter optimization, and kind of this uh, reproducibility and error bars. But let's put Pyren in the context of uh, what an industrial data scientist is using today. So for example, can Pyren supercharge my scikit-learn or my pandas? Yes, very much. So let's be precise what we mean here. I mean, that. Pyren is not going to make any of the job, any of the training that you're doing with Scikit-Learn faster, right? It is, it is still running Scikit-Learn's code under the hood, you know, whatever, whatever um, the Scikit-Learn authors have written as their like lasso solver, whatever is what's going to get run. What, what Pyren lets you do is run more of those models simultaneously, right? So it's really targeted right now at kind of embarrassingly parallel tasks where you want to do kind of the same thing on a bunch of different pieces of data or on a bunch of different parameter settings, right? And so the the, the argument here is that if you're a workflow for someone in industry, and we've, we've, we've talked to a bunch of people in industry on this, this front, is they use Pyren both for the ETL part of the process, right? And then taking that result, they build models, and then they use Pyren for kind of searching over the parameter space, right? And that ends up kind of the advantage there being that, you know, especially in an industry context, unlike perhaps a NIPS paper, you really care if your actual model works, right? You care if it generalizes to new data. And these sorts of kind of high throughput experiments can be a, a great way of figuring that out without having to put in a lot of extra engineering work. So in other words, you kind of... Uh you're able to parallelize a bunch of routine tasks without actually having to worry about supporting Spark or, or getting uh, data engineers to help you install Spark and things like that. You can just get going. Exactly, exactly. And that's, and that's really been the goal. We found for a lot of people, the activation energy for getting started with something like Spark is pretty non-trivial, right? And even the Spark programming model with like immutable RDDs and whatnot like requires a bit of change in thinking. Now, again, like I'm not sure I would build my company's entire real-time ETL pipeline on top of Pyren. But for, for these sorts, again, for anything that feels like has kind of an ad hoc or an analytic query, we found it works extremely well. So you talked about kind of Pyren and its relationship with the Python data stack. But on a single machine, there's uh, things that these uh, people who, who do scientific computation use a lot, right? So I'm thinking of things like MKL or CUDA. So what, what's, uh, what's the relationship of Pyren to these things? Great. So um, Pyren's all built on top of Anaconda's Python distribution. That was actually a really key design decision early on to handle the fun challenges of Python software packaging. But that means that, for example, the, the Pyren workers that are running on AWS already have MKL that's optimized for the underlying core types, right? So if you're the sort of person who knows what MKL is, let's start with that. Who's ever heard of FFTW? All of that is kind of being handled remotely for you. And so for those sorts of workloads, it's a really good fit. Unfortunately, the CUDA story is more complicated, right? So we use Pyren with where the back end is actually standalone EC2 instances instead of Lambda workers when we want to do kind of very CUDA intensive things because, of course, we need GPUs. And, you know, if you're doing anything with CUDA, presumably you're using an NVIDIA GPU. And the current offerings from Amazon do not support kind of GPUs or other types of accelerators in their serverless stack. Now, the hope is that over time, we're going to see kind of that trend changing, right? I think that that, that what you'll see uh, as we go forward is kind of more and more of what we think of as kind of traditional computing stack is going to get kind of pulled into this, this serverless infrastructure like Lambda. And so right now, if you want to use Pyren with CUDA, it's a few extra steps. 
But going forward, I think it will eventually be just as easy as using the default Python. So now the follow-up project is called NumPyRen, which takes you to serverless linear algebra. So what's the status of that? And uh, what are some cool applications so far of that? Great. So one of the things that really surprised us, even with early PyRen experiments, was just how fast S3 was, just how fast Amazon's kind of backing object store, their file store was. And early experiments had, just using PyRen, we were getting like 30, 40, 50 gigabytes per second of IO, of read and write IO to S3. And that, that was really interesting. That, that kind of made us start thinking, well, I wonder what that limit is. Right. Um, I wonder how I wonder how hard I can push the system before, you know, Jeff Bezos knocks on my door wearing his buff vest and, and threatens me. Um, and so we started pushing things and we found that actually, you know, S3 might be one of the most impressive distributed computing systems ever written. Right. We've we've seen literally kind of hundreds of gigabytes, again, bytes, not bits of of sustained uh, uh, throughput to S3. You know, a few years ago, there was still kind of, well, if I want real high throughput, I'm going to use a distributed file system like HDFS, but I think all of that is gone now. Well, so right. So so let's ask why it's gone, right? So I think that's, that, that actually is one of the most um, interesting research questions here, right? You know, I'm a real, what's a way of looking at this? I'm a Moore's Law truther, right? I think Moore's Law is dead, and anyone who tells you otherwise is, is likely trying to sell you something, right? And David Patterson has this fantastic graph that I tweeted a while back about how kind of the, the per core performance is really leveled off and the, the kind of total amount of silicon you're getting, total amount of devices on a die that you're getting is also kind of leveling off, right? We're seeing kind of as we push to deeper and deeper process nodes, kind of the cost of the capital cost of building these, these chips becoming more and more. And, and this isn't necessarily surprising. You know, everyone's heard that Moore's Law is going to be dead in 10 years for the past, you know, 30 years. But, but I think we're actually hitting that point. What does that mean? Well, what that means is, Actually, in the data center, it's going to increasingly be the case, I think, that the compute units are actually the most valuable. And we already see that in kind of deep learning type workloads, right, where everyone's desperate to, like, you know, take maximum efficient uh, uh, use of the GPUs. But I think we're going to see that kind of across compute more generally. But networking and disk speeds are kind of continuing to accelerate, right? Or sorry, are continuing to kind of improve with with Moore's law-like performance, right? They're not necessarily doubling every eighteen months, but you do see performance and improvements in the range of kind of twenty to thirty percent per year, right? And what that's driving is kind of this data center disaggregation, right? Data centers are are, are increasingly looking like kind of large numbers of compute connected through very thick interconnect, right? High-speed networking to large amounts of storage. And, and those things are kind of being pulled apart, right? If you think of the Hadoop model, right? Let's, let's, let's wind back in time to an era when, when Jeff Hammerbacher was king. And the Hadoop idea was that moving your data is expensive. It's sitting there on like spinning platters of rust. And so what you really want to do is move the computation to the compute, right? The, the point of having an HDFS cluster was having kind of that data in a format that- Co-located, yeah co-located exactly right because often the compute that you were doing also wasn't very complicated and kind of spark then was a was a movement in the direction where it's like well let's actually have that data in memory right let's have more and more of that kind of data explicitly represented in ram because ram prices are falling all of these sorts of things and because kind of once you're no longer bound by these sorts of kind of waiting around for for you know the byte to come around on the spinning disk um you can get things that are really performance. And I think that the future is going to look even more like um, going to kind of continue that trend, right? To where, in fact, your data is just going to live kind of off your machine. And when you need it, you're just going to pull it in, right? I mean, we're, we're with commodity networking approaching 40 gigabit speeds. That's a lot of data that you can pull in relative to kind of the amount of compute that you can do. And so all of these things made us think, you know, well, what if we tried to do something crazy? and actually try to do a traditional kind of supercomputing-like workload on using PyRen, right? Using and basically using S3 as our main memory. Now, I know that sounds crazy. Many of these projects all basically start as me thinking that something is a bad idea and, and, and wanting to, you know, see just how bad it is. But the interesting thing is it ends up working, right? So what NumPyRen is, it's a platform sort of like um, uh, LawPack or, or more correctly, ScalaPack for doing kind of... It's a supercomputer on Amazon. Well, so it's not just a super, <laughs> but it's like a serverless supercomputer, right? Yeah. 
where the programming model, the goal is for, for starters, again, this is all kind of motivated by um, both PyRun and MPyRun are motivated by this idea that kind of the cloud is too damn hard, right? And, if, and you know, if we thought EC2 was hard, MPI and Scala Pack and build, setting up those sorts of clusters are really hard, right? HPC is a nightmare. So the thought was, well, what if you could do something that looked like NumPy, except all the data transparently lives in S3 and all of the kind of high throughput computation that you're doing is all happening transparently via lambdas, right? How insane is that? Is that kind of crazy idea that might be the future? Or is that like, man, Eric, you know, what, what kind of drugs are you getting from, from these Berkeley undergrads, right? And so we wanted to figure that out. So we built NumPy Ren specifically to, to kind of address this question, right? Can we get kind of top 500 supercomputing scale performance for these large, dense linear algebra tasks where all of the compute is happening inside lambdas and all of the state, right, all of the memory is basically in S3? And the answer turns out to be yes, right? So when you say yes, are you like within 40%, 50%? Great. So let's talk about how you might compare these sorts of things. So the numbers that we're seeing, and again, this is all like two points. One is this is this is all firmly in the research phase right now. We have a paper that's gone out and whatnot. But um, um, and also the people doing this work, of course, I'm now the senior postdoc managing the project. But 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 Carl Krauthen and Vaishal Shankar, the two graduate students who are, you know, actually, I think you can watch them on Slack right now, committing messages, desperately trying to get this all working. But the, the, the performance that we're seeing are kind of imagine you want to do something like solve a really large linear system, right? What are things you might care about? Well, one thing you might care about is just end to end time. Right, I have a certain number of cores. When I start this computation, how long until it's finished? And there we're kind of consistently, let's say, 20 to 40% slower than what you get if you set up an MPI cluster. Um, but that's fine, man. So, right. So one, that's probably fine, right? But, but two, we're much more resource efficient, right? And I think actually this goes back to my point that kind of the compute is going to become the valuable thing in the future. Remember when you set up an MPI cluster, again, your state, that is the, the, the matrix itself, lives in memory with those nodes. So you pre-allocate, you say, I want, you know, 256 machines or something, and I'm going to do these large-scale linear algebra computations, even though the kind of structure of something like a Cholesky decomposition or whatnot looks like a series of map reduces where kind of at each stage you have a smaller kind of set that you're mapping over, right? So you, if, you, if you picture the parallelism, you start off and the problem is super parallel. And then it kind of shrinks down to not being very parallel while it does a little bit of local work. And then it's super parallel again, but a little bit less than before. And so it's this kind of dampened sinusoid. And so if you're using something like MPI, if you're kind of pre-allocating your cluster, what happens is you're paying for kind of the, the convex hull of that, right? You're paying for even when you have a bunch of cores idle, you're still paying for those cores. So the advantage of using a framework like NumPyRen and using something like, like AWS Lambda is that those cores are actually very dynamically being allocated, kind of turned on and off, right? So in fact, the, the number of cores that you're actually paying for varies over a factor of, let's say, 20 over the course of your computation. And what that ends up meaning is that even though we're 40% slower kind of end-to-end -end runtime than something that looks like traditional using Scala Pack or MPI, we end up being kind of a factor of two to three cheaper, right? In terms of the amount of compute we're using. Let me ask you about the name. NumPy Ren, because uh, uh, a lot of our listeners may be familiar with NumPy. So what's the relationship and to what extent are they interoperable? Great. So the goal here of NumPy Ren is to produce kind of a, a resulting software artifact that people can kind of pip install that lets them do everything that they would use an MPI cluster for our Scala pack for, but like driven from their laptop, right? And so it provides a very, uh, Vaishal has this very nice slide where he shows kind of the algorithm if you were writing vanilla NumPy and then the changes you need to make to use NumPy Ren. And basically it's like importing something, it's, it's importing the NumPy Ren executor and like establishing a connection to AWS. And otherwise you're basically just writing the same NumPy code you've been writing for a long time, right? So the goal here is very much and there's a lot of complexity behind the scenes that, that happens to, to make this all work. But the goal is that if you can write NumPy code that operates on a you know thousand by thousand matrix, then you can easily write NumPy Ren code that operates on a million by million matrix. And again, drive it all from your laptop. A question for me is, uh, you're located near Lawrence Berkeley, or is that right? Yes. Yeah, Lawrence Berkeley, yeah. So... Have you been able to convince them to take a look at this thing? We have only in so much as they are smart, curious people, right, who are always excited what the next big thing is. That said, I don't think we've necessarily gotten real buy-in 
from the traditional HPC audiences. Because uh, they have their own MPI and HPC installs. Well, so they do, and they often also have a tremendous amount of kind of legacy code, right? These are people who, you know, I've been playing with some of that code for some other projects lately. There's a lot of Fortran you out there. You mean Fortran? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I'm, 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 I, I told my wife that, that if I have to, uh, I will only learn Fortran if we can also play really loud disco music in the house so that the mood is, is set properly. But no, the interesting thing about the traditional HPC ecosystem is that it's kind of tight, the, the programming model and the use model are tightly tied up with this notion of like a large capital investment, right? And the and checkpointing. <laughs> and, and well, and lots of checkpointing and like lots of tools that feel kind of brittle and all of this. And so the the hope here is that, you know, I'm not necessarily convinced that we're gonna get legacy people with, you know, a million lines of Fortran that simulate the climate um, to convert. It's much more the people who the people I'm much more excited about are kind of the people who right now are only using deep learning methods because from their perspective, using any scalable linear algebra or kernel methods for machine learning is just too damn hard, right? Chris Ray has this nice quote where he's like, you know, why is it easier to, to, to train a, a bi-directional LSTM with attention than it is to like just compute the SVD of a giant matrix, right? One of these things is actually fantastically more complicated than the other. But right now, our linear algebra tools are just such an impediment, right, to, to doing that sort of large scale computation. So the hope is to kind of enable this class of work for the tensor bros out there. And so then, uh, in essence, then any algorithm whose uh, basic mechanism involves matrix computation, NumPy range should be able to implement at scale. That's the hope. I mean, again, you know, the the we are we are um, an academic research lab that has a history of making grandiose claims. <laughs> so. When we get this all out there, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm curious to see what the actual use looks like. But but it it does seem that for kind of, there there do exist a lot of points in the space where I think we'll be able to deliver on that promise. Right, we're kind of the and it's nice. I mean, it's actually really nice being being at Berkeley in a, a place that has a tradition of caring about kind of open source software and and getting things out there because it really seems like kind of the research and the the interest and the tooling are all kind of coming together. Speaking of Berkeley, actually, so you're, you're now, because Ben is part of the Center for Computational Imaging, you, you sit over there, but I know you also spent time at Rice Lab. And uh, in fact, I first learned about uh, PyRen through the Rice Lab people because uh, they offered uh, PyRen as one of the tutorials in the first uh, Rice Camp, along with another project called Ray, which is also kind of like distributed Python. So what is uh, the relationship between PyRen and Ray? Great question. So so I think of Ray, my mental model for Ray here, which which Ray now has like a tremendous amount of interest in, in, in dev tools and whatnot behind it. I think of Ray as very much kind of the new spark, right? Ray is an excellent platform for kind of building large-scale distributed systems. And Ray is much more Python native than Spark was. And it also has much more of a focus on kind of real-time performance, right? And so a lot of the the things that people are interested in with Ray revolve around doing things like large-scale reinforcement learning for a lot of the kind of deep reinforcement learning things that everyone's really excited about. I think of Ray basically as the tool for professionals, right? Um, I don't know if, if Robert or Philip would, would beat me up for, for saying that. Whereas, but the goal from our perspective with NumPyRen and PyRen is to actually kind of tackle a different user base, right? We're very interested in kind of people who have no mental model for what distributed computation should look like or who have kind of no experience building those sorts of systems, and who honestly have more relaxed performance needs, right? If you really care about squeezing out every byte, or if you care about kind of if latency is a big concern for your application, Ray is, I think, totally the best in class to go for right now, right? But if you're more in kind of this casual mode, I think that, that PyRen and hopefully non-PyRen are going to be better fits. Yeah, and then uh, Ray, Ray, of course, is written in C++. That's why uh, you were saying you can squeeze more out of it. But uh, one of the things that actually these two projects share, and maybe this is kind of a Berkeley thing, is that they both have very simple APIs, right? Yes, exactly. Well, so the, the goal of both is to have a simple API, right? Very small and simple. I would argue that because of the complexity of what Ray is doing behind the scenes, even if like Spark, the underlying API looks simple, there's actually a, a, a tremendous amount of surface area under there that you have to reason about. Uh, much as with Spark, you know, everyone says, well, you know, there's map and you do these kind of nice Scala list comprehensions and these simple things. 
But, you know, before you know it, you find yourself worrying a lot about kind of out of memory errors on your worker nodes because the caching allocator didn't clear things properly or you have some kind of legacy RDDs hanging around. So kind of the additional complexity that comes along with that, I think, might end up being a challenge for at least a lot of the users that we're targeting. Again, kind of the people running ad hoc queries or the, the people who are coming from kind of physics or, or engineering backgrounds where they don't necessarily know kind of how to figure out how much RAM is on their machine. So I, I, I again, I just really want to stress that if you're if you're trying to build a real large scale distributed system, Ray is the place to be. And if you're more kind of experimenting and trying to kind of do these sorts of things that have this more analytic flavor, I really think that, that at least the hope is that the PyRen and NumPyRen are going to be a good fit. Actually, this is uh, coincidentally, tomorrow is the first ever Ray meetup invite only. And I'm fortunate enough to be invited. So I'm looking forward to uh, hearing about some of these more industry use cases for uh, Ray. But one of the things that, as you pointed out, that Ray enables and actually makes easy now that they have a library for it is reinforcement learning. They have a library that sits on top of it called uh, RLlib. And uh, our mutual friend, your uh, boss, Ben Recht, recently wrote that uh, he thinks that all of the daunting and interesting problems in machine learning are now reinforcement learning problems. So do you agree with this? Well, all right. So let's let's talk about what. Let me put words in my boss's mouth because that's never <laughs> bit anyone and before. Since, since uh, it's hard to schedule him on this podcast. Let's... Yeah, I think he's in China right now. He's been in like Berlin for the past six months. Um, I mean, so so right. So Ben makes this argument that the and I think he's right about this. The most um, interesting problems in machine learning right now involve kind of taking action based upon your intelligence, right? Taking action based upon kind of past data and doing it in a way that is kind of safe and robust and reliable and all of these sorts of things. And that is very much the domain that has kind of traditionally been occupied by fields like control theory and reinforcement learning. And I think that's pretty true. By the way, Eric, just uh, for context for our listeners, I don't know to what extent you actually know the answer to this, but reinforcement learning is not a new field. It's been around for many years. I mean, you'll run into people who got their PhDs in reinforcement learning in the 90s, right? But with the advent of deep learning, so deep reinforcement learning, it, it made a comeback. But what sorts of uh, problems were reinforcement learning able to address before deep learning? Well, great. So, I mean, from my perspective, the question with reinforcement learning is that I have the world, I have some system that has some state, and I want to take some action. And in fact, I often want to take a sequence of actions such that I achieve some goal. Right. And so reinforcement learning is part of a, a collection of techniques that are often targeted at solving problems that have this structure. Right. Often these are known as kind of Markov decision processes. Right. In fact, sometimes uh, it's confusing because it, uh, reinforcement learning is used to refer to a class of techniques and a class of problems. <laughs> Exactly. Like with all these things, the nomenclature gets a little bit sloppy. But so, you know, reinforcement learning had been had been used in kind of a, a what I would argue are a collection of interesting toy examples, ranging from figuring out how agents should plan in kind of complicated environments. And then there were some applications in like education, right? So online teaching. And then is it fair to say that bandit algorithms are kind of reinforcement learning? Right. So, so you can think of the class of problems that banded algorithms are trying to solve, right, have this real reinforcement learning like flavor, right, where, again, you're trying to make a series of decisions under uncertainty based upon data that you don't necessarily have the complete picture of to optimize some goal, right? In a K-armed bandit, you want to figure out which of these arms gives you the highest reward over time when you pull it. And so, you know, I think the bandit people would vomit if I said this, but you can imagine, yeah, that, that on the, the spectrum of interesting problems that can be tackled by reinforcement learning, kind of the bandit optimization literature is in that family, right? Um, as is, though, you know, all of control theory, right? I mean... I see, I see, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think of control theory as reinforcement learning that works, right? I mean, and... Yeah, you, you can use it to fly planes. No, exactly. Like your car doesn't crash all the time because of control theory, right? Uh, <laughs> your airplanes are totally safe. And this is, you know, this is vital work that's gone back, you know, 70 years now, right? The people who worked on this have their pictures on the walls at MIT when I was an undergrad. So so then I guess the, the series of posts that Ben wrote was around, so here's uh, reinforcement learning. Here are the applications it can be used for. People got excited because of deep learning. But then there's these 
model-based methods come from control theory that uh, you can't forget about. It's that kind of the... I mean, I would make the stronger statement, and again, you should... What, what, what harm can come from this? But Ben's argument is that basically <laughs> reinforcement learning doesn't really work. And that um, what really works and has achieved tremendously wide success are model-based control theory methods, right, that are, again, solving the similar class of problems. But by and large, the control theory, so, so Ben's blog posts were partly an attempt to kind of bridge these two worlds, right, and to kind of explain to both himself, you know, these always, there's always kind of a self-pedagogy component of this, but also the world, that in fact, these model-based methods often do a much saner and more robust job at tackling a lot of these problems than just throwing it into reinforce. But is it either or? Because you're starting to see, in fact, I think at the last Rice Lab retreat, maybe Sergey Levine, I think, gave a talk around deep reinforcement learning and combining it with model-based techniques, right? So people are increasingly trying to use these sorts of model-based techniques or put more models into their reinforcement learning problems, right? We'll see if kind of the lipstick on a pig approach ends up working, or <laughs> if the right thing to do is kind of continue generalizing the space of nonlinear control, right? Again, and this, this is all, these are all very biased things to say, right? Why well, have a weak opinion on anything? But a lot of the things that we're kind of interested in are these continuous control tasks, right? Tasks where, you know, you're moving the robot arm or you're adjusting the airfoil on the plane, where often, again, the dynamics arise so naturally, right? The model comes so naturally. Why make your deep learning system, why make your deep reinforcement learning system kind of relearn the fact that objects have momentum every single time, right? From an engineering perspective, that feels a little silly. Now, if you think that the goal of all of these methods is to get to AGI and you kind of want to put no information in ever and have the thing automatically learn, then maybe these are interesting research questions. But putting on our engineering hat, we often kind of want to put in and going, kind of bring this all full circle back to being a Bayesian take advantage of the prior information that you have about the world, right? And then this long celebrated history of, of physicists came up with all of this knowledge. Why are we going to throw that out, especially if we want to build systems that both work and work robustly, right? Work when their inputs are perturbed, work in uncertain conditions, which is the thing that control theory can give you right now that none of these deep reinforcement learning methods can. So the deep reinforcement learning techniques are basically, let's learn everything from just basically massive simulations, right? Right. And, but then, like you said, uh, one, it's not the most efficient. But also, I think that uh, to what extent can you kind of deploy these things in mission-critical situations if you don't have any prior assumptions or... You know what I mean? So how, how do you do error bars on these things? Right. So exactly. And, you know, people debate about this. I mean, again, like I have these, I really want to stress that most of what I'm voicing here is an opinion weekly informed by data, uh, which is presumably as, as only slightly more valid than my opinion about what the Fed should do with interest rates. Um, but no, I think that attitude is correct, right? The tremendous sample complexity required for a lot of existing machine learning or a lot of existing reinforcement learning algorithms suggests that one, they're going to struggle in the real world a bit, but two, that, you know, they're vulnerable to a lot of these challenges, including simulator mismatch and, and whatnot. Um, and again, people are working on this, right? People much smarter than me are like, a you know, none of the people working on deep reinforcement learning are unaware of these challenges, right? They think they can lick them and I'm just more skeptical. Well, this has been a great conversation across many, many uh, topics. Uh, thank you, Eric Jonas. Thanks, man. It's been great. You can follow Eric Jonas on Twitter at Stochastician. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud or Spotify and never miss an episode.